This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and it takes a lot of balls to golf the way I do. My co-host is John Paz, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and he's convinced the whole planet is bipolar. In this episode, we're revisiting a podcast aired back in 2019, where John and I talk about knowledge versus proficiency. Have you ever wondered why you can know a lot of Chinese, but not be able to speak it? Yeah, this episode's for you. Guest interviews with Josh Summers, who spent 10 years living in Xinjiang, out in the western part of China with his wife and children. Listen to his stories of living, learning, and thriving in a diverse, exotic environment much different to what we normally associate with China. Let's get to it. Hey, coming to you from Shanghai, China, I'm John. This is Jared. And you can learn Chinese. This is the podcast about learning Chinese. But John, you did learn Chinese. You're never done, Jared. There's lots of Chinese, uh, even if you've come pretty far. That's true. In fact, our interview today, she definitely addresses that issue. It's an issue. Well, today, there's something I wanted to talk about. Well, good, because we got to record something. <laughs> well, good thing we have something to talk about. This one specifically came from a discussion that I saw on a forum. And this person was talking about they've been studying Chinese for a long time. And they just felt like they having trouble speaking still, listening. In fact, overall, they said that their speaking or listening skill is still relatively low. Um, they can know a lot of characters, and they're just having trouble actually speaking the language. And I think this is a challenge that a lot of people deal with. Yeah, it's an issue of uh, proficiency and fluency, right? And it's it's especially hard when you're not living in China, and there just aren't a lot of opportunities to practice Chinese, or it just takes so much effort to find someone to talk to. Yeah, I liken this. It's the difference between having a knowledge of Chinese versus having proficiency in the language. And the skill. Yeah, and there's two different things. It's like you can know all about uh, you know some area like about masonry, but maybe you don't know how to lay a brick. You know, it's it's very different. It's, it's two different skills. So I think for this person, one good thing is that they have identified the problem. Like they they know that they have the knowledge, but they also know that they haven't got the fluency with the speaking and the listening. And uh, unfortunately, the answer is quite simple. If you are not good at speaking and listening, you need more of it. If you do have the vocabulary, you have the grammar patterns, you know, you have that knowledge built up, then that means it will be a little easier, but that doesn't make it easy, right? You still have to do the work, the blood and sweat and tears of trying to understand and failing, trying to say something and failing, and then just slowly making progress, right? So I guess the question is, what do you do if you're in this situation? How, what kind of advice can we give to a, someone who's struggling with this, where they've, hey, I've been studying Chinese for a long time, but I just I can't do anything with the language. I can't speak. I can't write. I can read some stuff. I if I can understand things in Chinese, but I'm just I lack that proficiency in Chinese. Well, I think this ties back to the thing we talked about before about like how do you create an immersion environment, right? Um, but the other thing is it's tied to your goals. So do you really want to be able to have you know fluent Chinese conversations? And if so, what are you going to talk about? Um, and that kind of ties into how you should be practicing or what you should be trying to talk about. Um, but some people, I don't know, I think they want to be able to speak Chinese, but they, 
they don't have any clear idea why. And so to become clearer on that will also kind of point the way into how maybe you should start practicing. Yeah, it's like, what is what is the whole purpose behind this? And I've related some stories in the past. I remember the one story I related. I had learned some words that related to repairing my bike when I got a flat tire in Shanghai one time. And, you know, and I remember those because that's something I'm actively using or I went to the market to buy things. So this is, I think this is really, point, really important because I even had recently had a friend that was showing me uh, how he was doing some studying. He was asking me, he's like, Jared, hey, I, I just need to really, I, my Chinese, I feel it's like a plateau. I'm kind of stuck at this level and I really need to get it to kind of the next level. And I said, well, what are you doing right now? And he he's, opens up you know, an app he has on his phone and he's like, I'm going through these word lists right now. And, I mean, one of the words was like, uh, it was like for an amphibious assault vehicle. Another one was for like a lily pad. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, this is better than not doing anything, right? But this is not going to help you reach your goal of becoming more proficient. And we had this discussion. I said, well, what are you using your language for? And he's giving a lot of presentations in front of groups uh, for, his, for his job. And he's doing a lot of it in Chinese. But he says, like, I know my Chinese has all sorts of little problems in it. I, I have little grammar things. Or I'm not saying things the best way. He's like, but people understand, and they get me. And I said, yeah, that's, that's true. I said, probably if I were you, one of the best things to do was say, hey, let's get your presentation. Maybe get a tutor. You start going and working through that. You're working through these little problem areas because this is a problem. And I honestly, John, this is a problem I have. It's like I, I easily I start falling back on old patterns of language that I'm comfortable using and that I'm used to doing. And so, and it takes some explicit instruction or explicit effort to kind of break out of that. Yeah, another good trick for that is if you're already doing these presentations in Chinese and you need help on it, well, record yourself doing the presentation. That way you can find someone, you know, a tutor, whoever, maybe someone online, and then you can send them the audio and then they can give you a detailed breakdown of all the issues. Um, Hopefully your ego can take it because there are probably going to be more than one or two. And, uh, you know, taking that and then building on that, and in the future you're going to record again and you're going to see improvement, uh, it's great. Another similar example is um, I know people that are studying Chinese in Shanghai and they have opportunities to, uh, to practice, but then the material that they're officially studying is from a textbook. And you look at the textbook and it's like, oh, chapter on tea ceremony and then, you know, chapter on calligraphy and then ancient poetry. And it's like, okay, so you really like tea and in calligraphy and poetry? No, actually, I don't, but that's just what's in the textbook. Well, maybe you should study something that actually relates to the conversations that you're having. Now, obviously, that's kind of a good problem to have because you have an easy way to have those conversations. So let's take it back to um, the example that you gave in the beginning. So this guy, I think he's not in a Chinese environment. Um, He's reading pretty well. He has a decent vocabulary, but he knows that his listening and speaking are not very good, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one thing that you can do fairly easily would be just to listen to a lot more. Mm-hmm. So he has to find some source of material that is um, somewhat spoken, you know, not like reading the news, but real conversations in Chinese. Listen to that. Um, preferably it's content that has, you know, authentic spoken Chinese, but then also has a transcript. Um, so that will improve your your listening. And, you know, you can go through the transcript if you have a lot of trouble following it. Um, but it's better to listen first. And then, of course, the really big thing is you have to find opportunities to speak. And it needs to be something that overlaps with the type of material that's going to improve your overall speaking ability. So if you're listening to stuff that is the type of thing people talk about, and then you're talking to someone about what you listen to, then it all kind of dovetails nicely 
and uh, will upgrade your fluency. My thoughts on this is having a fundamental shift in how you are approaching your language learning. Because sometimes people will have that perception that if I'm not studying, I'm not learning. I'm not getting better. And so it's that constant pursuit of building your knowledge of the language. But once again, I think for someone in this instance, the problem is not necessarily the knowledge. It's the proficiency in what it is you know. So need to look at involving yourself in these activities that allows you to use what it is that you know. And so like you said, you, you know, listening, you know, if you have something in a video or something that has a transcript, okay, great, that's a great opportunity to start practicing what it is that you know. This is another big reason why we always harp on extensive reading, you know, reading at your level that allows you to become proficient in what it is you know. And this is something I've talked about to teachers and with students before is that, you know, if you only know 300 characters will be fluent in those 300 characters. If you know 500 characters, get fluent in those 500 characters. And it's not just characters, obviously, it's words too. But, and that's, you know, one of the designs of graded readers is that it helps you build that solid proficiency in the language that you know. So the concept is like fluency now, as opposed to fluency like five years or 10 years down the road, that seems to be this far off, you know, task. But Sometimes when we're studying, that's what a lot of people, they're looking at that. They're looking, hey, oh, 10 years from now, I, I plan to be fluent in Chinese. Well, I say, well, why not you be fluent right now? You know, what, you, you know 300 words, 500 words, get fluent in those, you know? And the, the great thing is that as you practice your proficiency and build your fluency in those, you absolutely will start acquiring new words along the way. It's unavoidable. All right, so let's look at the reverse. Like if you're not doing it that way, what might you be doing that doesn't work well? And one of the first things that um, people all often do is they're like, oh, I want to learn Chinese, so I'm going to download this flashcard app. I'm going to download a, a word list, probably HSK, and then I'm just going to memorize all these words. And even though I think they know deep down that memorizing a word list does not equal becoming proficient in a language, they just kind of see it as a convenient proxy for progress in the language. And yeah, it is progress, but it's just one part of the progress and they kind of neglect everything else. So that's one thing that um, I see people doing a lot. And yeah, you need to learn vocabulary, but you need to do other stuff as well. And then moving on to like kind of the next step in that failure to get an overall fluency going is um, if you build vocabulary, you work on grammar, and then you work on reading, but then you only work on reading. And what happens is you become kind of dependent on being able to read at your own pace and, you know, really carefully identify each character and then identify the word. And that's good. You need to do that. But then when people are talking really quickly and, you know, you have to speak, that practice that you did doesn't equate to being able to spit out, you know, fluent answers or even to comprehend their questions. You know, I think a lot of these things, it has to go back with what we are comfortable with, right? And when we're talking about, like, learning new elements of the language or building proficiency, typically it's going to involve you stepping outside of your comfort zone. And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's not easy to just say, hey, I'm going to go talk to somebody in Chinese when I'm not confident in my level of Chinese. Or, you know, I'm reading and I'm doing flashcards because I can do that by myself. I don't have to let anyone know. I don't have to be embarrassed by, you know, trying to struggle with a character in front of somebody else or use the wrong tone. I mean, this this is it's really common. And, and anyone here listening, you can relate to that. You know what it's like. We know what it's like, John. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's it's hard it's hard to, to do this because sometimes we do our own little study program that fits to our own comfort level. 
And in the reality is that to sometimes break, break through these plateaus, we have to step outside of our comfort zone and we have to try doing things that we haven't been doing. Yeah, and there's this one, um, I don't know who said it, but there's this famous sentence about uh, learning to draw. And it's something like you have 10,000 really crappy drawings inside of you and you have to get them all out before you can finally learn to draw well. Or not even learn to draw well, start to draw well. You have to get out the 10,000 crappy drawings. Well, guess what? You have 10,000 crappy tones and other mispronounced <laughs> words, uh, you know, misunderstood simple things, and you got to get all those out. So it's not a matter of perfecting everything before you start talking. It's a matter of making the mistakes now, make many, get them out of your system so you can progress. I think for anyone listening now, it's saying if you're stuck in this plateaus, it's, it's probably looking back and really reexamining. Sometimes you have to get really honest with yourself, and it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to look in and say, oh, you know, wait, I realize I've been avoiding conversation. Or I've put off downloading WeChat so I can chat to someone online, right? Or whatever it is. It, but you're going to have to take some you know, focused steps forward into the areas. Like if I'm, I'm weak on listening or weak on speaking, well, yeah, the only way you're going to get better at that is by listening or speaking. You know, there is research that shows if you are extensively reading, you're going to improve in your listening, speaking, and writing. If you do no, you know, nothing else other than just the reading. But when you combine some of these things with your leveraging reading and combine it with the speaking and the listening stuff, you, you, you multiply, you accelerate. It's a catalyst, you know, for all of your learning. And so when we really take a holistic approach to language, learning a language, then we're going to really approach to more of those, like, ideal levels of fluency that we're talking about. You know, like I can put myself in any type of situation and I'm feeling comfortable, you know, like and at least have some sort of command of the language. That being said, you're always, you're always going to be put in some sort of situation at some point and you're like, I don't know what's going on. I imagine, John, do you still have those these days? Yeah, it happens. It happens. From time when you're with your buddies talking about nuclear physics, it's a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) My wife actually likes to talk about, um, Quantum physics. <laughs> oh, really? So actually getting better with the quantum physics vocabulary, but <laughs> but maybe not the nuclear physics yet. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, I, I, I even wonder, could I handle a nuclear physics conversation in English? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And now, how about a word from our sponsor? We're dying to know who it is this time. Well, let me tell you, John, it is Mandarin Companion. Yay. All right. Today, we're going to talk about our level two book. Our level two standard is based off of only 450 unique characters. And the story that I want to talk about is Great Expectations. Originally by Charles Dickens, this is a completely Chinese story, Chinese adaptation, Chinese characters uh, set in, you know, around around the year 2000. And I wanted to do this story. I thought it was a fantastic story. And when we got in writing it, it turned out to be a monster. <laughs> a lot. It turned out to be so much more. They, we tried to condense it into one book, and it turned to be a very long one book that didn't carry the weight of the story. Yeah, some plots can be kind of simplified and, and really cut down, but Dickens' plots, uh, not so easy to do that. Yeah, his the original book is into three parts, and I think it's a total of like, I don't know, 70, 80 chapters, something like, don't quote me on that. But it's very long and a very complex story. We had to cut a lot of it, but we kept the very focal essence of that story, and I think it is a wonderful adaptation. And if you're looking for something to read that's pretty long, this is probably the longest, simplest book you can read in Chinese because it's two parts. You know what the total character count for both parts together is? I think it's roughly maybe 24,000 characters, 25,000. Yeah, that sounds right. 
my favorite is I wrote a story on our blog about one, a reader who uh, is sharing his experience of reading our books, and he said that when he got to the end of Great Expectations, uh, he, he, just, he, he just kept turning the page. He couldn't go to sleep. It was like 1 or 2 a.m., and when he finally got to the end of the book, he was just like in tears. He was just bawling. And I'm just like, oh, that's perfect. Oh, I just, you know, that was, that was rewarding. So anyway, so anyone who's ready for our level two books, 450 characters, go out there, check out Great Expectations. You can get it on Amazon in print or ebook. It's on iBooks. It's, it's, it's all out there. So uh, get it today. Now we're ready for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? A rant or a rave? I have a rave. I like to talk about a tool. Um, this is something that anyone can use, but it's especially useful for people in China. Because if you're in China, you may have noticed that you know Google services are, for some reason, mysteriously inaccessible. So you can't go to Google.com. You can't go to Google Translate. And um, I like Google Translate, not to translate, but to just give me pinyin. Uh, sometimes you want to generate some pinyin for a sentence or whatever. And uh, Google Translate actually does that for you. It gives you the pinyin as well as the English translation. It can also translate not really translate, but convert simplified characters to traditional characters and vice versa. And it also provides pinyin for that too. So what some people don't know is if you go to translate.google.cn, the Chinese version of Google Translate is accessible in mainland China. Hallelujah. There you go. Google.cn, but it's translate.google.cn. So you might be using you know, Baidu or something, um, but you can actually use Google if you want to. Well, good. Well, thanks for that, John. I have a rave, too. Hey, this is such a positive podcast today. I have another rave. So my rave is about a website, and it's called ChineseForums.com. So it's Chinese-Forums.com. Now, this is a great resource for anyone who's learning Chinese. This forum is broken down into different topics. It's, pretty, it's really active. So there's a main thread for resources for studying Chinese, speaking and listening skills, reading and writing skills, grammar, sentence, structure patterns, vocabulary, idioms, blah, blah, blah. And there's even, there's even a topic for tattoos, names, and quick translations. So uh, in this great, it's a very active community. There's all sorts of people getting involved in there. There is a lot of good information. And there's some people in there who are very regular posters who know a lot of stuff. So, I mean, if you have like a, an issue or you have some questions or something about Chinese or about this or that, it's a great forum to get involved with. There's even a forum section for about studying Chinese outside of China, universities in China, things like that. So if you're interested in you know going abroad, you want to find out about a certain school or a program, this is a great forum to get involved with. It's just filled with a lot of information. Yeah, and actually the, uh, the developer behind Pleco, the dictionary that we all love, he is active on this uh, website. Mike Love. Yes. And uh, Roddy Flagg, the founder of Chinese Forums, I know him. He's a great guy. I haven't seen him in quite a while. Hey, Roddy, if you're I, listening. Hey, Roddy, we should get him on this podcast. He's, he's great, and he's, he's Scottish, too, so he has a great accent, yeah, as you can imagine. I like that. And one other shout-out to um, a guy that I've known for a while. He's very active on Chinese Forums, Imran. Um, I don't know his real name. But I know. That's his, that's his username, right? I guess. It is. I, 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 <laughs> that's how I know him, Imran. Anyway, he's a really, really intelligent guy. He always has lots of great uh, information to share, and you'll probably see him posting in almost any of those uh, forums. Pretty much. He's like you know number one poster, I think, in the forum. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not super active on there. I'm a little busy, but every time I go, I think, oh, man, I need to check this site out more often. It's so good. I, there's a wealth of topics in there, so I, you can just go read through and just – 
You can pick up anything, man. So what is the URL again? Chinese forums dash. No. No, sorry. It's, that's what you need to point out. I know. Chinese-forums.com. One more time, that's Chinese-forums.com. Thank you, Jared. Act now while supplies last. This was one of the early interviews of our podcast, aired in 2019 in a pre-COVID world. An update on Josh, he has since moved his family to Thailand, where he continues to run his content marketing business. This was a memorable interview with a great guy. I hope you enjoyed it. My wife and I actually moved to China in 2006. Uh, we were in the western part in a region called Xinjiang. This is Josh Summers. He and his wife first moved to China to teach English. They learned Chinese, then started a business. And if you've ever looked into traveling to the region, maybe you've heard about him. And what I understand, you have a website, right? Yeah, I got a couple. Far West China, which has to do with that Xinjiang region. It wasn't that hard to be known for that just because there's nobody else that's writing about that region or nobody else that was living out there. And then I've got a, another one that is for China in general called Travel China Cheaper. You'll hear a lot about this part of China you may not know much about. Josh has an amazing story, and he'll even share with us his favorite place along the ancient Silk Road. Stay tuned. Josh, tell me a little bit. When did you start learning Chinese and why did you start doing that? Well, I mean, I remember when my wife and I had first decided, okay, we're going to move out to China. We've never been to China before. No, wait, wait, hold on. You said, you and your wife, you said, let's move out to China. What prompted that? Why did you decide to go to China? So when we got married, we kind of had a compromise. My wife really wanted to live overseas. I really wanted to have a family. And so the compromise was that she would have one kid at least, and we would, I would be willing to move overseas for a year. And uh, it ended up, we had two kids. We both spoke Spanish. And yet the only thing that really was opened up to us, we had this connection, this really weird connection with a guy in Louisiana who had a relationship with a university out in far western China. And he's like, hey, I can get you out there by the end of the summer. And so we said, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> and what turned out to start as, you know, just a single year out there ended up being 10, 10 years that we were out there. Now, this is a common story I hear of people saying, hey, let's just go out to China for like a year and teach English, but they end up staying for a long time. Now, what kept you guys out there? We just fell in love with that particular region. Now, granted, I, I'm careful how I say that just because I really love China and there's a lot about China that I love traveling around, but Beijing isn't necessarily my cup of tea. Shanghai isn't my cup of tea. What really drew me and kept me in China was the diversity of the region that we were in. People who are listening, if you've heard, there's a region known as Xinjiang. It's north of Tibet. It borders a lot of the different uh, Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and, and the name is Xinjiang. We first moved out there and I kid you not, we were the only Western foreigners in a city of 200, 300,000, which in China terms is a, is a pretty small city. We were thrown into a setting that was just such an adventure. Different groups of people. There's, uh, of course, you've got Han Chinese. There's the Uyghur group. There's Hui. There's Kazakh. So a lot of mixtures of not just cultures, but food and you know different things that we got to experience that that really kept us there and and allowed us to fall in love with that place, those people. Now, this is an interesting point because when we talk about China, a lot of people think of your traditional uh, oriental Chinese looking person. But out there, you you had a lot of people that didn't necessarily fit the 
typical stereotype of what a Chinese person would look like. Exactly. It was about a 50-50 split in many cities where you'd have a lot of them that looked more Central Asian. So whatever you think of when you think of Central Asian or Turkey or even Pakistan, Tajikistan, that is a closer resemblance of what that culture and that people would look like as opposed to the Han Chinese. So you were living in a world that felt like very much like a melting pot. So you had this connection to China through this guy in Louisiana, and you decided, okay, well, let's go out there. Tell me about that experience of moving out to the China and coming into the, the area that you were living in. It was certainly a, a shock, the initial culture shock you can handle because you're expecting it, right? You know that things are just going to be incredibly different. You just don't know what to expect. And and it was, it was different. It was, you know, we were out in the middle basically of a, of a desert, a really dry plain area. You know, as the only foreigners there, it was, it was just everything was was brand new. The language, the the culture, everything that we what we ran into was new. And and add to on top of that the fact that Xinjiang itself is kind of its own culture, just because of the many different uh, ethnic groups that make up that region. And, and so, a lot of what we're we're experiencing isn't just China. We're we're experiencing very Xinjiang specific things, um, whether that's the food or weddings and funerals and and things that you know to us was beginning to feel like, oh, this is the way that China mm -hmm. is. It didn't take long for us to realize, no, that's actually, uh, th there's a lot that's that's unique about this particular region. Um, but that also proved to be problematic in some ways, just because there are so many different ethnic groups, there are also a lot of different languages. And so we would run into Russian, we would run into, obviously, Uyghur and, you know, Mandarin Chinese. And so there was there was about a year or two where we weren't sure we were going to be planting ourselves long term. And so we didn't necessarily dive in and start learning the language immediately. So did you start studying Chinese before you came to China? Uh, my first foray into the Chinese language was literally Pimsleur CDs. Are you familiar with Pimsleur? Have you ever heard of that before? Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar with those. I mean, it, it, it's an okay system. It's not necessarily one I would recommend. But for us, we got the introduction and I remember listening to it in the car the month before we were scheduled to fly out to China. And that was our literally the very first time I remember learning how to say ni hao the first time and just being like, wow, that's, that's so weird. That's such a foreign language. <laughs> Now, why did you start studying Chinese more in earnest to approach the level of Chinese that you are at now? You know, it, it is a privilege. It truly is a privilege to live overseas. And and I think a lot of us expats tend to forget that. Um, but if there's anybody listening that, you know, that's sitting at home wishing they could live overseas, you, you know what I'm talking about. It is a privilege to live overseas. And, and I didn't want to waste that away by just enjoying an expat life. I, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to walk away with something that was tangible. I wanted to walk away with something that I could add to my resume. Although the resume wasn't the driving force, but really it was, it was an ability to connect with the culture that I was in more than anything else. How did you start learning more in earnest? Yeah. So in earnest, it really took shape when a friend of ours tutored me and my wife probably once a week. And a lot of my learning started off just that Chinese method that I know that you and John have talked about where there's, there's a lot of rote memorization. I've got notebooks full of characters just written 10 to 50 times. <laughs> I mean, anybody who's studied in China knows exactly what I'm talking about. I decided that I wanted to be able to communicate. I wasn't taking formal classes at the time. Eventually I, I would 
transition into formal classes because I wanted to start doing business in China. I knew that. And so I knew that I would have to really up my game with the language in order to do that. And that's when I transitioned from, you know, studying at home, studying with just a personal tutor while we were teaching English to saying, no, we're going to save money. We are going to enroll into a, a university. And it was just me at the time that was enrolled in the university. And I'm going to study uh, while I'm here in Xinjiang. And you know, the, the truly fascinating part about that is that unlike places like Beijing and Shanghai that have these amazing schools that are dedicated to teaching foreigners how to speak the language. I was in a, a university. I mean, it was a traditional university. It was the Xinjiang Shifan Dashui, which is the, the teacher's college. You know, they had a language program. Everybody that was in that program was Central Asian, whether that was Russian or Kazakh or Kyrgyz, all of my classmates. So our only common language was Chinese. Even even as we're walking to school or between classes, that was our only common language. And that in itself taught me a whole lot because it's forcing me to not revert back to English language that I would want to do when I wasn't in class. You have a very diverse group of classmates, but how did the professors teach you Chinese and how was that learning experience? The learning experience was was certainly good, but I wouldn't say that like if all I got was the classroom teaching, my language probably wouldn't be where I would want it to be because you're talking about a, a period where I've got 30 different classmates. So I'm definitely getting a lot in terms of listening skills, but my opportunity to speak is is not very much. Uh, you know, I've got classmates that are really dedicated. They know that the Chinese language is the only way that they're going to get out of whatever small town they're from and, and to really make a career for themselves. And so they're extremely motivated, which was motivating to me as well, but also somewhat intimidating because they just had so much time. They were single. They weren't married like I was. And they pushed me. And that was a good thing. But the classroom itself, the classroom setting was like what you would expect with a lot of just any, you know, maybe what my son would get in first or second grade, where it's just a lot of, of rote memorization, a lot of uh, repetition. Um, and there was a lot that if I didn't spice it up with stuff outside of the classroom, I probably would have gotten pretty bored. So what did you do to spice it up? You know, when I talk to people that are interested in coming out and learning Chinese in China, there, there are a lot of pros and cons to doing that, obviously, in, in bigger cities like Beijing, Chengdu, Xi'an, obviously Shanghai. But there's also a lot of benefits to doing it in what I would consider inner China, places that are not filled with three to five million people and have an expat population of, you know, thousands of people. I was in a region that had so few foreigners that I rarely had an opportunity to go out and, and meet and talk English with somebody. Most of the time I was forced into an opportunity to speak Chinese. And that kind of immersion is really what kept me engaged. You know, if I wanted to go play basketball, I'm playing basketball with a whole bunch of students that only speak Chinese and I'm learning the vernacular of, of what they're saying when they're playing basketball. If I wanted to go and you know, go out to eat or, or do anything like that. There's, there's not an English language alternative and there's not an English language community. It is all Chinese. And, and that was super important to, for me and my language learning. And what city were you living in again? So I've lived in, in two cities. The first was a much smaller city called Karamai in the northwest portion of Xinjiang. And then the second was the capital of Urumqi. Urumqi, okay. Yeah, Urumqi in Chinese, correct. <laughs> okay. yeah, that's actually a very good point because I've always known it as Urumqi, right? Yeah, exactly. But how do they say it out there? Uh, Urumqi would be kind of the local way to say it. So you could say Urumqi or the Chinese version, which is Wulumuchi. 
So how did you get along in China before you started really studying Chinese? I mean, you know, anytime you're doing any type of immersion, you will learn what you need to learn to get by. It was easy to learn what we need to learn to get stuff at the grocery store. We figured out, my wife and I figured out our favorite restaurants that we wanted to eat at. We figured out, and then we had, you know, a couple friends, especially particularly the English teachers that we were teaching with that would speak English with us. And so that was the times that we could get by without necessarily using a whole lot of Chinese. But to be honest, there were times, my wife and I called it our, our America days, where we would literally kind of shut the door on a Saturday, lock it, turn off our phones so that we couldn't get calls, and just like watch TV, you know, American TV shows and eat American food, just kind of forget that we were in China for a moment, because it, it got overwhelming at times, for sure. Okay, so now you've gone through this university program. How long was the program? And where do you feel your Chinese was when you finished? So when I finished, I passed the HSK-6, which is was my goal. I wanted to get to that point in my Chinese before I transitioned into a business visa. Okay, that's HSK. That's a current HSK-6. So that's that's really high. That's the highest level they have. Oh, well, I didn't realize that at the time. Congratulations, Josh. <laughs> Honestly, it wasn't it was less about a certificate for me. It was just this is this was a goal I had and I knew that once I reached that goal, I could comfortably move into a business setting and and thrive without, you know, feeling like I was going to lose my lose myself just trying to make it, if that makes sense. Okay, so then you finished the university program, and how long was that? I mean, the university program could have gone on for a while. It was an open-ended. I spent a year and a half in the university program, uh, and that was a full-time study, you know, for what I guess that ends up being three semesters. Can you think of any times when you were studying or any point when you were learning Chinese where all of a sudden something just started to click, and maybe you just kind of had some breakthrough moments in learning Chinese? I remember, and, and I think any expat who's who's trying to learn Chinese, you kind of get to this, you remember this point where you get to the end of a conversation with somebody and you look back and you, and you realize, I wasn't translating in my head. Like I was actually just conversing. I was speaking my mind and granted it probably wasn't flawless grammar probably wasn't the best word choice, but I was speaking my mind. And when they spoke, I wasn't translating in my head. And, and I remember a couple times early on when that happened. And it's just this like, wow, this is what it could feel like most of the time if I keep up with this, you know, and, and the joy of that was just is huge. And it's a huge motivator. You know, that's something I identify with people who are learning Chinese, that exact point of when you go from speaking by words and translating your head to speaking with ideas and just understanding it in the language. That's a huge step. Yeah, it really is. You know, th there are a number of different things that I learned about what I would consider more of a, an immersion language study, where you kind of put yourself in a place where you are forced into learning a language. And one of them has to do a lot with tones. I still to this day, if you tell me third, that's a third tone, that's a that's a second tone. I get mixed up all the time. I don't know if you do that, Jared, but I, I get mixed <laughs> up all the time. Of course. And I hate it. What I would rather do and the way that I learned through immersion was just say, no, don't, I don't, don't write it out or don't, you know, put your finger in the air or on your palm and show me what tone it is. Just say it, repeat it, let me record it on my phone and let me learn it from a native the right way so that if I ever try to say it the wrong way or if ever I hear it the wrong way, it just doesn't sound 
like the right word. And that's one of the things that I really valued about kind of this immersion strategy is, is, is I don't want to have to learn associate numbers and tones. I just want to learn the way it sounds. Uh, and then, you know, of course, follow that up with a little bit of the, an understanding of a rising tone, a falling tone, but I don't want to, I don't want that to be like the, the driving force behind my learning. And that was, that was a great thing for me being an inner China gave me an opportunity because like being a foreigner was still this novelty. People still would kind of turn their heads and say hi on the street. And it's not about me wanting to feel special or anything like that. But that gave me an opportunity, more of an opportunity, I feel like, to join in weddings in, you know, be a part of, um, you know, cultural festivities that most of the time I it wouldn't be a part of just because I, you know, it, it's too, it would have been too easy for me at least to get sucked up into an expat community. I'm very curious to know about some of these cultural activities that you were able to participate in. Oh yeah. Okay. So one of my favorites, and, I, and I'll just use this as examples. So we had Uyghur weddings were some of my favorites. And what, what would happen is prior to the wedding, you would have a procession. And this procession happens in a Chinese wedding as well, but it's unique for a, a Uyghur wedding because they would have a, a what amounts to a pickup truck at the front of the procession. And all of the groom's best men would stand in that pickup truck. One of them would have a drum, one of them would have a trumpet, and the other 15 that have packed into the back of this truck would just dance as they went up and down the streets, like all through the streets of the city, playing a drum, playing a trumpet and dancing. And then of course, a procession of cars behind that, where you've got the bride and the groom and then a cameraman and all that stuff. Uh, but it, you know, there's a lot of dancing involved. And that sounds like a really fun experience. Oh yeah. Looking back, you're right. It is. It's something that we got to participate in. Now, was your wife learning Chinese also? She was. Yeah. I, I had a little more drive just because of the, the business angle. I, I had a, a goal and a reason to do this stuff. And once we had kids, it became a lot harder for her. But she did. She learned the language and she did incredibly well. So how did your experience change out there once you actually learned the language? I mean, other than, like you said, the just a, a window into the culture, but I think more than anything else, it opened up a whole new world to my wife and I in terms of, of travel. So there's a lot that you can do in China. You can, you can travel all around China without understanding or being able to speak a lick of Chinese. It is entirely possible. But the places that you can go or the things that you can get involved in as you're traveling with Chinese, it, it's just like an added layer. For us in Xinjiang, it is such a remote underexplored area. It's so hard for people to get out there because there's just, you know, you have to fly into the capital mostly and, and it's hours and hours to get to any place. But if you live there, it's a whole lot easier. And we got to go explore um, way into the cracks and the crevices of that region to find places that people hadn't been before. And I believe that a lot of that had to do with the fact that we had language. You know, we would have, we would get stopped by locals, um, specifically local police that are just asking us, hey, what are you doing in this region? And if we had no language skills, uh, more than likely we would have been able to, we would have been turned around and asked to leave. But being able to sit there and explain, hey, we're, we live in this city. 
this is our home and we're exploring and we wanted to see this. And I remember one time they actually, you know, the, the police officer found out where we wanted to go and he escorted us there. He's like, oh, well, I, I know exactly where that is. Let me show you. And he <laughs> drove us out there and, and it was great. And that kind of interaction wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have the Chinese language. Now, Josh, you have a website that helps people navigate and and travel around Xinjiang. So you tell me, what is one of the coolest places that you've been out there in Xinjiang? Oh, there's so many. I think one of my favorites is a trip up to a place called Tashkurgan. Pretty much the westernmost city in all of China is one called Kashgar. And that's kind of this old Silk Road oasis that you've heard of if you've read anything about the Great Game or a lot of the early 1900s history of China and India and Great Britain, all of that stuff that happened there. Tell our readers real quick, what's a book to read? I think the one is just called The Great Game, if I remember right. The Great Game. Okay, cool. Yeah, but the road, it's called a Karakorum Highway. So the road that leads between Kashgar and then into Pakistan uh, is called the Karakorum Highway. And it is, it's an amazing, gorgeous highway. I rode it, literally rode it, like on a bicycle. I rode it back when it was a, a dirt path that would constantly have mudslides. And it was just, it was a crazy fun ride through the mountains, the, the Kunlun Mountains and the Altai Mountains. Uh, into this place that is Tashkurgan. And Tashkurgan is mostly a Tajik people. And so it was, it's a new culture, uh, a lot of interesting parts of that culture that, you know, that I could spend hours talking about. But that alone was one of my favorite trips, just going up and down that highway. And do the people out there, do they speak Chinese or do they have their own local language? They do both. So most people in Xinjiang and and even most places. So Kashgar, the name itself is not a Chinese name, right? That's a local name for that place. Whereas, you know, Chinese would call it Kashir or Kashgar if they were to completely transliterate it. And Tashkurgan is the same thing. That's not a Chinese name. Urumqi, the capital, isn't a Chinese name. There's there's multiple names for each place that you go. Uh, now, the older generation sometimes will only speak the local language, but anybody that's 30 and under will generally speak both uh, Mandarin Chinese and a local language, whether that's Tajik, Kazakh, Uyghur, or something similar. Did you learn any other languages while you were there? I got advice from somebody once that uh, had been in Xinjiang before, and they said, you know, we've we've seen people that have tried to do two languages at once, and what they end up doing is they get mediocre at both of them. He said, but if you really want to learn a language, he's like, you you focus on that one language. And then once you master, I mean, how do we ever master? Once you feel like you have gotten to a level that you want to in that language, then you transition over. So we were just about to the point when we were ready to transition over um, when we eventually were needed to, to head back to the U.S. Now, Josh, looking back at your whole experience in China and your experience with learning the language, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? Yes, that is a a very good question. And one of the big things that I learned, and I wish I could, I could kind of go back and, and change. But if I had to boil it down to this one sentence, I would say this, that, that your time in China or, or language learning, or in my case, immersion is an active process. It's not a passive process. So there were times, and and I maybe this was just dumb of me, but I, I kind of believe that if I just lived there, similar to like, let's say, throwing my son into kindergarten, after a little while, he's just going to pick it up, he's going to soak it up, and it'll just kind of become natural to him. And I figured that if I did the same, that I would just pick up the language. 
However, immersion or language learning is certainly an active process. And I wish I had started being active about that a whole lot earlier. I remember you saying at one point in, I think the second episode of this podcast that, you know, you had to go in and you needed to get your car fixed or something. My bike. Yeah. My bike. Oh, your bike. That's right. Your electric bike. And so you, you learned the, the language that was needed for that. And then you used it. You were actively immersing yourself in that situation. And I wish I had done that a whole lot better where I would put myself in these situations, but not just try to soak it in, but, but actively think, okay, I'm going to play basketball. What are some of the things that I would want to say? And then at the end of it, after I've played with all these guys, writing down some of the things that I heard, being an active participant in that would have, I think, helped me soak that in and learn it a whole lot faster than I did. Another question along those lines of how important is literacy to learning Chinese? I honestly came into China not really having an appreciation for the written form the the chinese characters like it didn't it didn't move me at all and and i've walked away saying wow you know i i can see the beauty of chinese calligraphy and a lot of that has to do one with reading and literacy but i think two it's it's coming to the understanding and an appreciation of what literacy does for your learning of the language you know even just being able to read obviously signs and menus and stuff like that but but i think it's it's a, an even deeper deeper level of language learning for me where it's not just uh, being able to communicate verbally but being able to write a letter to one of my friends or to read a contract that i'm trying to sign for my lease and understanding better what that's saying and you know a lot of that came from reading books that were you know i i'm I'm an active reader of Mandarin Companion. I love the the stuff that that's that you guys have put out there, but but also some of the other stuff I've used. Hunger Games is translated. Uh, Harry Potter is translated. Um, a lot of those reading that has been you know it's just it's something that I would want to read, and there's a lot of it that's really challenging vocabulary to be sure. But just the act of of trying at times was was a lot of fun. What would you say is your Chinese superpower? I'd say my Chinese superpower is not being scared to make a fool of myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's an underrated skill. And it is. A lot of times I've been asked to sing at these parties or I've been asked to be a, a host for some gathering at a school. This is especially true as a teacher. I hosted a whole bunch of things, but even as a student, I did that. And I remember one point being a host and standing on stage and saying something, and I kid you not, the entire Chinese audience laughed. And I knew at that moment it was because I said something wrong or I, I mispronounced something. And I was like, dang it. But, you know, I kept on going. And I think that just that willingness to mess up in public in front of a whole lot of people is a superpower that, uh, that, I, was, that I became proud of. Now, what advice would you give to someone who's starting to learn Chinese right now? If you're starting or if you haven't yet started, it's just start now. Like like I said, I, you know, the Pemsler system isn't one that I would necessarily say that's the greatest system ever. But I'm proud of the fact that I, I, we started. We did something. And a lot of people get paralyzed by this. Well, I, I, I've got to wait until the class starts or I've got to wait until I actually land in China before I start studying. No, I mean, you jump into it now, the sooner the better. You may not learn everything that you need to learn before you get to China or before you travel to China, 
But sometimes it can feel so overwhelming that the best thing you can do is just dive in headfirst. Yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite poems I share with people. Well, it's not a poem, it's a saying, but it says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is right now. And there's a lot of ways to learn a language, and they all can work. It's just some are more effective than others. Exactly. I'm really glad that you can share with us your perspective about living out in a different area of China. Just in closing, could you share with us a treasured memory that you have of your time out in Xinjiang? I would say that one of my most treasured memories was early on, we had a good friend that invited us to a spring festival celebration uh, at their in their hometown. And that's the Chinese New Year. Exactly. Yeah. The, the Chinese New Year that usually happens sometime in January, February. It's a floating holiday. They, we, I remember getting on a bus. We're going over rocky paths. We're going what I would consider really deep into kind of the heart of Xinjiang at the time. We stayed in a place we we didn't have central heating like it was we were literally heated by a stove with coal and we were staying with their family and I remember getting to eat the the customary meals to play the games um I remember <laughs> having having fights with the men about how much I did not want to drink all the baijiu that they wanted me <laughs> to drink which is the the white wine and the troubles that that caused I remember a number of kids come up to me on the street and just be like we've we've never had a foreigner in this town before and just the uniqueness of that experience but but more than anything it's like it's it, it's like inviting somebody into for me since I'm an American that like a, a Christmas celebration with my family that that's a very intimate time and to allow somebody into that is it, it to me it would be a big deal now we, now we have people over obviously around Christmas time but like that family time during Christmas that's a that's a I would consider a sacred family time and we were invited into that with another family. And that was a that was a very special moment for us and, and really neat to see the way that, you know, a family interacts in one of the most important holidays for that culture. Josh, thanks so much for joining us on the show here. And also for our listeners, you also published a book. Yeah, I recently published a, a travel book for people that are thinking about coming out to China. So and maybe haven't been out here before, don't know what to expect. And what's the name of that? And where can we find it? Yeah, it's called Travel to China, Everything You Need to Know Before You Go. It's available on Amazon, both as a paperback and an ebook. It's been a culmination of a lot of my experience and a lot of stories that I had to share to learn a lot of the things that are in that book. But it's, it was a lot of fun putting it together. Well, there you have it. So you can find it on Amazon. The name of the book again. Travel to China, Everything You Need to Know Before You Go. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, birthday girl, presenter, designer, climber, forecaster, editor, fundraiser, and that one guy named Paul. Please subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also reach out to us at mannercompanion.com or mannercompanion on social media. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The you Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor for this episode is also myself. I'd like to thank our special guest, Josh Summers, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passon. See you next time.